0: Let's turn together this morning to Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians chapter number 3. And as we continue to think upon the themes of the Apostle Paul and even continuing to think about those things which uh, we are to be thankful for, uh, the Apostle Paul, as we left off in verse 15 of chapter 3 last week, gave us the admonition uh, to be ye thankful And thankful for certainly all that God has done and all that God has given to us. And even as we've just been reminded how great God truly is. Uh, The Apostle Paul here deals with a couple of uh, very practical matters here. Now, all of these things, of course, have been practical when we think about those things we are to put off and those things we are to put on. But he begins now to speak about some things that um, specifically address How we are uh, even to teach, to instruct, and to worship one with another. Uh, Look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Colossians 3. Uh, Paul writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the lord and whatsoever ye do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god and the father by him notice that first expression let the word of christ dwell in you let the word of christ dwell paul says paul here speaking of not just the doctrines but the very word of christ May it be dwelling in us. This has a reference to being known with familiarity. It is not something that is known from a distance. It is something that is known deeply. It is known that is something that is residing within the believer. Paul here, of course, is addressing not one rank of people, but he is speaking to men and women. And he's giving these words to instruct us that, as believers in christ we should not just have just a mere taste of the word but it should dwell within us it should well to dwell within us richly he says in all wisdom and so this is a very important admonition it's an admonition that the word of christ is not something that we just merely have a simple taste or a sample of he's exhorting that it should dwell Uh, To dwell, as we'll talk more about here in a few moments, has the meaning of taking up a settled residence within. It means to establish a foundation. It is to be settled. It is to be secured. And it should be our aim is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, this phrase that Paul uses here, in all wisdom, Uh, The word of Christ, as it dwells in us, uh, it certainly does give us wisdom. It makes us wise as we should be. And he's giving us here what a definition of this wisdom is. You'll notice that as the the word of Christ dwells in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Uh, We see here now he's introducing the Colossians to their responsibilities to teach one another. Uh, every uh, properly structured church, of course, has those that stand up and they teach the word of God. They expound, they explain, uh, they, they, they they instruct what it means. But notice this is not just given to those who are uh, what would be referred to as the uh, uh, appointed teachers, but that all that are in Christ, all believers are to be teaching and admonishing one Another, The word teaching here refers to profitable instruction. Not all teaching is profitable. Uh, There are false teachings in the world. There are teachings that are not true. There are teachings that are downright dangerous if they are heeded. But he's talking about profitable instruction. Well, what does profitable instruction do? Profitable instruction edifies. It builds up. Now, Timothy, when Paul was writing to him in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says about Scripture, all Scripture is profitable for teaching or for doctrine, he says. That's the true test of God's Word. The true test of God's Word, is it profitable for edifying doctrinal teaching? Now, sometimes it's been said, I don't, I don't take this stance, but some have said that doctrine is cold. Uh, I don't believe doctrine's cold at all. I believe doctrine is rich. I believe doctrine is actually edifying. But some will say if you just have doctrine itself, then it's cold and it's simply not effective. Well, to a sense, there could be that. It could be uh, very academic to where we just, we remove ourselves from the life application or how we ought to apply that doctrine. But what he's talking about here is when you take all of the word of Christ, when you take the doctrines of it and you take the exhortations of it, when you take all the beauties of what the word of God is, it leads to this beautiful picture of teaching and admonishing one another. There is this confirmation of not only what we believe, but what we also exhort one another to do. Now, again, notice he's not just saying that the word of Christ should be mutually beneficial to your teachers. No, he says it should be beneficial that you may teach one another. You see, proper doctrine and proper teaching of God's word leads to mutual required Teaching and admonition. One thing a lot of church members don't think about, they don't think about that they are required to admonish and teach others. Uh, It is not just a responsibility that's given to the, the pastors, it is also given to the congregation itself. Now, this section introduces between this verse, verse 16, all the way down to verse 25, the end of the chapter, he is giving the Colossians a common rule for our behavior. Now, oftentimes it's been said that, you know, once you're in the faith, once you are a child of God, our bonds or our responsibilities lessen. Paul's stating the exact opposite of that. He was saying that as you do experience what it is to be in Christ, our relationships to one another, there is a higher level of responsibility and let's call them what they are. They are duties that we have to one another. This The concept that just simply says, well, you know, my presence, for example, at a worship service is really not that important. According to the scripture, it is. According to the scripture, it says you are required to be a teacher and an admonisher of others. It's the beauty of the church functioning properly. So it isn't just, well, nobody will miss me or nobody's, it's not really that important. We are given the requirement. It's, it's often like, well, you, ex, you would expect your pastors and elders to be able to teach you and the expectation should be there. For example, you should have a very high expectation of me as the pastor to admonish and teach and instruct the word of God. You should hold me to a very, very high standard but we don't hold each other to the same standard that says you are to teach and admonish. Now notice he does go on, and it's interesting when he says here, we're gonna talk about this a minute, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He connects teaching and admonishing with the very things that we sing. The very, the very hymns and psalms, and we'll talk about that in a few moments as well. There is a responsibility that Paul is writing here about what we, as believers in Christ, should be towards one another. So let's talk a little bit deep, more deeply about these things. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Uh, the word of Christ here, or the word of God, as it might be met, it is the entirety of the scriptures. We believe that the entirety of the word of God, the Old and the New Testament, are under the, from the inspiration of God. They were given by the Spirit of Christ, and the the Scriptures from the Old to the New speak and testify of Jesus Christ. We believe Christ is as much in the Old Testament as he is in the New. The name Christ is not seen anywhere in Genesis to Malachi, but Christ is just as present in the Old Testament as he is in the New. So he's not just saying, let the words or the Bible, the the verses that speak specifically of Christ, he's talking about the entire counsel of God, the entirety of the scriptures. So what are we being called to? Paul calls the Colossians, they call them, he calls them to the word of God. Now, in order to have more than just a taste of the word of God, What do we have to do? You have to search it. You have to attend to it. You have to diligently read it. You have to meditate upon it. Those are the activities that furnish spiritual wisdom unto you. Again, I'm not trying to give you a checklist today, but if, if you are not in the word of God on a regular basis and diligently digging in and meditating and searching and carefully attending to, you are not going to have the wisdom of God. Where else are you going to get it? Some people have falsely just believed Well, I have the Holy Spirit of God. He gives me everything I need. The Spirit of God is working through the word of Christ. It's working through the word. That's where people get themselves in trouble. They say, well, the spirit told me to do this. The problem is what the spirit supposedly told them to do is contrary to scripture. Well, that's unwise. The spirit of God is not going to instruct you to do something unwise. And he's not going to instruct you to do something outside the bounds of scripture. So how are we going to know the word of Christ if we do not diligently read it, meditate upon it? Now, the word of Christ also here, of course, since it speaks of the entire council, the Old Testament and the New, it does speak about the gospel, right? We know the gospel, Christ is is the gospel, and Christ himself came preaching the gospel. He preached it as the God-man. He preached it also as the very mediator. But this word, the word of Christ, the Bible, is the word concerning Christ, This is a book about his person. It's a book about his divinity. It's a book about the blessings of God. It's a book about his offices. It's a book about peace. It's a book about redemption. It's a book about his blood, his justification, his righteousness, and how salvation is completely found in Christ's obedience, his sufferings, and his death. Paul is saying, let those truths dwell in you. Not just a taste of it, but let it dwell in you. Notice he uses intentionally dwell in. Notice it doesn't say dwell around you. Dwell near you, but dwell in. A fixed place where the the, the, the word of Christ is dwelling. A constant fixed place. It never departs. Not only should we be frequently reading, meditating, hearing it, but we should have an affection for it. We should have an, an, an affection for something that dwells within us, not just familiar with it. Most Christians are familiar with the Bible. Most Christians are familiar with the Word of God, but does it dwell in them? Being a Christian Being saved doesn't mean the word of Christ dwells in you. Again, lots of Christians are familiar with its teachings. Sadly, again, not every case. There are people who are of false religions who have a better knowledge of their false religion than Christians have of the true religion. There are false teachers who have doctrines that they know their false doctrine better than we know the true doctrine. And Paul wants them to understand this is more than just I'm familiar with it. No, it, it's, it's, I have an affection for it. I have an acknowledge for it. It's fixed. It's established. It abides in me. It's that, it's that expression we've talked about, having a experimental knowledge of. You've known what God's word has said. You've witnessed God doing his work. It is our delight. It's as David said, it's it's his necessary food. It's the word of God that when you're in your darkest hours is where you have the greatest counsel. See, when the dark days come, the first place you turn should not be to another person. It should be to the counsel of the word of God. Why? Because it's nearest to you. It's in you. The word of Christ is to dwell in you, he says, not near you, not around you, but in you. It's the most valuable thing in the world Paul is talking about here. This is what we are literally setting our heart upon is the word of Christ. Now, just to make it even plainer, he doesn't just say, let it dwell in you, Randomly or partially, he uses the word richly. Now, the word richly here has nothing to do with finances, has nothing to do with money. It has to do with abundance. It's the same word abundantly. So a translation you may have may actually say dwell in you abundantly. It's richly, it's that terminology. And he doesn't just mean part of the scripture, but he means the whole of it. Every truth, every doctrine, the entire counsel of God that's been declared and preached ought to be received and dwell in you. There's a fullness, there's a completeness in the scripture that we get. Everything that relates to our salvation. Everything that, re, that relates to our truth, it's a rich, abundant treasure. It's a treasure trove, if you will. It is f- overflowing with what? With truths. So that not only when the preacher stands up and proclaims it, is it an abundant blessing to preach it. But it ought to be an abundant blessing for you to hear it. And again, it has nothing to do with the eloquence or the ability of the speaker. It never has. It's not he who can speak the best, but it's he who speaks the word, speaks the word of truth. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. I think it's probably fair to say the Apostle Paul knew what it was when he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you. He doesn't say it here because it wasn't under the inspiration of the Spirit to tell him to say this. He, I think it would have been easily for him to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly like it does in me. But he doesn't say that. But you have to think the way the Apostle Paul wrote and the way the Apostle Paul demonstrated his knowledge, that he knew what it meant to have the word of Christ dwelling in him. In all wisdom, not natural wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God. Spiritual wisdom. Brethren, what we need today is not earthly wisdom. It's spiritual wisdom. Wisdom that relates not only to our salvation, but what you even do in your life. How you live your life, what you do, what you don't do. Where you go, what you're, where you don't go. We need wisdom. We need wisdom more than we need more education. And I'm all for education. But we need spiritual wisdom. Well, where do you get spiritual wisdom? By attending the word of God. It comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit teaching you what the word of God says. We would not understand what the scriptures say, not a single word, if it's not for the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Spirit that gives us understanding, gives us discernment, so that when we read the scripture, we see and we understand the great truths. It's what we desire, it's what we pray for. And then he says, Teach and admonish. And we've already been here, but now we're expanding more. Teach and instruct yourselves. Now, again, he's not saying this is where people get things wrong. He's not saying replace the public preaching of the word. Okay. He's not saying put away your pulpits, put away your pastors, put away your elders, and just teach one another. That's not what he's saying at all. This is in addition to the public proclamation and the public preaching of the word. But how do we As churchgoers, church members primarily, how do we teach and admonish one another? Well, here's where he's going to give us how we do that. Teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching, yes, in private. Sometimes there are conferences with one-on-one individuals. Sometimes there are times we come together to pray. There are times when we come together for other various reasons. But he says here, by prayer and by the singing and the praises to God, we have this teaching, teaching and admonishing one another. Again, not just the public ministry, but it's putting people into the same frame of mind. It's just what's at, this is what's at the heart here. How in the world do we do that? When a church gathers, whether it's a small gathering like today or a larger gathering, how do we do that? He clearly tells us in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is most likely, now again, this is where you can get into these, these matters of debate, and that's not my intent today. But. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs most likely refers to the singing of the psalms. Okay, now the reason we understand that is because several of David's psalms also have the title of maschil on them, M-A-S-C-H-I-L, which actually means instruction. So when you see that heading in the psalms, when we're reading a psalm, and I say a psalm of David, and it may say a maschil of of a songwriter or a mask of someone else, that means that that psalm is instructive. And what it means is, is that when we sing a psalm, right, a number, however many years it's been now, when we started singing psalms, that wasn't just a random choice. That was intentional based upon the commands of Scripture. We are to be singing the psalms. Now, should we be singing the psalms as they appear? Yes, we should be. Now, our Psalter, we do sing them, and they are based upon those psalms. They're not word for word, but it is the pattern of singing psalms. Now, that's where the debate comes in. There are those who say the psalms and the singing of them, they are given by God as a means of teaching. That's why we try to be very careful about what we sing and why we sing it. And that's why there are certain things you don't hear when you come to church here. They are meant to teach us. They're meant to instruct us. They're meant to admonish and edify the saint. Right? They're not meant to edify us personally per se, but to edify one another. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of things here. The Geneva Notes, the Geneva Study Bible, puts what he means by psalms here. He says, by psalms, he means all godly songs, which were written upon various occasions, and by hymns, all such as contain the praise of God, and by spiritual songs, other more special and artful songs, which were also in praise of God, but they were made fuller of music. There are brethren, churches like ours, who only sing psalms they would not bring any other hymn book inside of their church worship services. They wouldn't bring them in at all. Now, they're not necessarily saying every song in those hymn books are wrong. They're just saying that what Paul most likely meant, especially during this time, you've got to remember, we, we can't think like this is 2023. You have to think about what was being said. What was the songbook of the first church? What was the songbook of the first century church? It was the Psalms. The Psalms were meant to be sung. They were read for instruction and they were sung. So there are some that take that position. Again, I'm not, I'm not dogmatically against that. There's nothing, be, there's nothing wrong with just saying you're singing the Psalms. <clears throat> now, not everybody takes that position. But he does say that there has to be a key to this. Notice what he says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace. I love that phrase. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That means every song that is sung, whether it's a psalm, whether it's a hymn, or it's in our spiritual song, is meant to be sung with grace. And it's being sung in your hearts to the Lord. That is the singing of these psalms, these hymns and spiritual songs, right? The manner in which they are to be sung is how? With grace. Can an unbeliever sing with grace? No. An unbeliever cannot sing with grace. To sing with grace means to sing with the assistance of the Spirit of God. It's impossible to sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord as an unbeliever. You're singing with grace is with the assistance and the grace of God, right? So that's what Paul means here. So he says, when you are together, when you are teaching and admonishing, you do that through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Again, today is not a message about which way is right. Should we only sing the psalms? Is it okay to have the hymns of grace and a psalter? That's not the point today. The point is we have to sing them with grace. And we sing them with grace to the edification and the profit of the hearers. To have grace in the heart means you have what? You have to have faith. The Bible says in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You realize that really only a believer can sing the Psalms. Truly only a believer can sing a hymn that is to the glory of God. What does it mean when we sing with grace? It means to sing with gratitude. There's not a psalm or a hymn that we sing here that should not be sung unless gratitude is there. It's thankfulness of heart. It's thankful for God's mercies. It's thankful that God has given us these blessings to unworthy, undeserving sinners like us. But singing with grace also means it ministers grace to others. Now you realize one thing Paul is not saying. He doesn't say sing everything in proper key and proper pitch. And notice that it is teaching and admonishing one another. Again, just as a side note, there's a reason why we don't have special performers. There's a reason why there's nobody singing solos. There's a reason because it draws attention and we are called, the Bible calls us to congregational singing. And not whether or not you can sing or not, that's not the qualification. The qualification is, is singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So that means every believer should be singing unto the Lord, singing with grace for the teaching and the admonishing of one another. Singing in your hearts doesn't mean, I like what one commentator put it, he says, it does not mean mental singing or something that is opposite to singing with the voice. The object here, he says, is it is to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Singing unto the Lord Jesus Christ. When you sing to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're singing to the glory of his persons. You're singing to the glory of his grace. You're singing unto God. Which part of God? The Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the divine persons. When you sing with grace, you are singing with thanksgiving and gratitude for the entirety of his perfections, the entirety of his works. That is the object of our praise. And we only sing with the glory of God being the goal. We sing praise to God. We are exhorted to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with this grace in our hearts. Exhorted, he says, by way of review here, diligently study the word of God. Meditate on it. Let it have a permanent residence in your heart. May the word of God be such a part of you that it is loved, it is obeyed, and it's delighted richly in its abundant truths. We're all prone to study one part of Scripture that appeals to us the most. Every one of you have a portion of Scripture or a doctrine or a teaching that is more prevalent. It's, 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 our, it's our pattern to focus on that But do you realize the abundant richness of the entirety of the counsel of God's word? We are to benefit from all of it. We are to benefit as we grow in the grace. So it's not only the duties of the ministers, the elders, the pastors to teach and encourage and instruct. It's the duty and the responsibility of every believer to teach and encourage and instruct. Right? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, the hymns and the psalms are not meant to prime the pump for worship. That's not the primary reason. It's to admonish and teach one another to the glory of God. The object of our praise is God. All we do, whether it's singing the psalms or the hymns or the spiritual songs, it's all to be done for the glory of God of the Lord, which leads us to verse 17. Again, don't dismiss it, disconnect it from the context. Taking what we just read, taking what we've read and learned all the way from the previous verses, all the way to the beginning of chapter three about being risen with Christ, a new creation, putting on, putting off these things. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatsoever you do in word and deed, whether it's the preaching of the word of Christ, whether it's hearing the gospel, whether it's singing hymns or psalms or spiritual songs, in our conversation, and our conduct, whatever we do civilly, whatever we do religiously, the entirety of our conduct and conversation whether it has to do with natural things, moral things, gospel things, anything that relates to God or man is to be done to the glory of God. All of it. There is no such thing as our church life and our private life. There is no such thing as our church life and our secular life. We are to do, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you say, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks, again, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We do it in the heart of thanksgiving. So notice the use of the word do. Do all in the name. What does that mean? That means these things are to be done in the strength of the word of Christ that dwells within you. Right? This is not having the proper mindset like you're preparing for a game. Right? This is not that getting yourself elevated to get ready for a battle. No, you're doing this in the name of the word of Christ and the word of Christ that dwells within you. You can't do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ if the word of Christ doesn't dwell in you. This isn't a post-it note when you get up in the morning of you can do all things. Great verses, but you cannot do this if the word of Christ does not dwell in you. Again, many Christians are content to just have a taste of the word of God and then they wonder why they struggle. They're struggling because the word of God is not dwelling in them. It's just a taste. They're just familiar with it. They know it's there. They read it occasionally, but it's not dwelling there. And yet here we have, again, cannot disconnect the context here. Part of the word of Christ dwelling within you, again, we can try to ignore it. But he says that also includes teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You realize you can't do that by yourself. We can try to frame this any way we want. But absenting yourself from the gathering of the church does not help you in any way, shape, or form. It does not help, but it never will help you. Because it's not only required, but it's part of what keeps continuing to solidify the word of Christ dwelling in us. Again, when trials come, we learned that in prayer meeting this morning, when trials come, we want God to remove the trial instead of letting the word of Christ dwell in us and say, how do I endure the trial? His grace is sufficient. And see, when we do all in the name of the Lord, it's in the strength of Christ. Even Jesus' own words where you can do nothing without me. Yet there's a lot of Christians that are getting by. They're trying to get by on doing all they can without him. And yet that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. To do all in the name of the Lord Jesus is not only in the strength of Christ, but it's according to the mind and will of God. That means to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus means you have to do it according to what his word says. Not according to what you want his word to say. Why? Because it's through calling upon the name of the Lord and through the assistance of the Holy Spirit is how we do all things. It's God's glory that is our aim. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This might be oversimplifying this, but I love the way Spurgeon put this. If you cannot do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, do not do it at all. If you're a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian, you will be accountable to God by and by for all that you do. It may be oversimplification. But if you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then don't do it. Giving thanks to God and the Father. Again, don't disconnect. This shows that the singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs is distinctly different from even the giving of thanks. Giving of thanks here is now being mentioned as a distinctly different thing. What things are we thankful for? We are thankful for all things, certainly. Who do we give thanks to? God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit this is the proper means in which we give thanksgiving there is no other way to bring sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to god that is acceptable except through jesus christ It doesn't matter how sincere you are doesn't matter how caring you are you cannot bring sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving apart from christ Actually, verse 17, when you put these two verses together, and actually you take verse 17, this is really the key verse in the entire study of the whole book of Colossians. Right here, a little bit past midway, in the middle of the letter to the Colossians, we have the key. This is the common rule of our lives. Do all. In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Everything we do is to be done for his glory and with thanksgiving to him. Whether we're preaching, whether we're singing, whether we're praying, whether we're teaching in our conversations, whatever we do, we do it in the name of Christ for his glory. Every bit of it. Whether you're at home, whether you're at school, whether you're on the job, Social gatherings. We're never at liberty to do whatever we want to do. We're to do all to the glory of God. Again, there's been an intentional disconnect between the private life and the church life, and it's been going on for years where we've disconnected and we say, well, there's certain ways I have to act if I'm here, but I can act this way if I'm here. That's not biblical. Everything we do should be done to the glory of God. That's convicting. Doesn't convict you; it convicts me. Because when you think about what Paul was saying here, Paul's not standing up there apologizing for what he's saying. He said, "This is the everything you do," and he covers everything, word or deed. He doesn't say word or deed privately or at church. He's talking about everything that you do. Do all to the glory of God. We aim at God's glory. What does it bring? We even read in the psalm today, it brings the blessings of God. You know, God doesn't tell us these things because he's trying to hinder us. This brings a unity of heart. It brings a unity of purpose. You know that saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder? That's not true in every element. Because when we absent ourselves from these things, when we pull ourselves away from these things, you know what life becomes and you know what church becomes? It becomes about us. The more you absent yourself from the influence of those other believers, the more selfish you'll become. It becomes about you. It becomes what everybody else isn't, but what you are. See, the beauty is whether there are two or three gathered in the name of the Lord or whether there are 2000 of them, if they're gathered in the unity of heart and Christ is dwelling within them, that's the beauty of it. Remember, Paul was writing to a mixed multitude, if you will. These were Jews and Gentiles who were together, who were had the they had the tendency to be at each other because the Jews were still fighting for a lot of the old Judaism ways. And when he talks about this is the way our, our, our behavior ought to be, these would have not been easy words for the church of Colossae to read. We have to be in unity of these things? That's exactly it. We don't do it for selfish purposes. We do it for the sake of Christ. The gospel, the whole counsel of the word is the word of Christ. Again, Paul's not saying you don't have the word at all but it should dwell in you. Don't let it dwell in you poorly to where it has no power over your life. The soul, the very soul, prospers. Listen to what Matthew Henry said about this. I love this. He says, The soul prospers when we are full of the scriptures and of the grace of Christ. But even when we sing psalms, we must be affected with what we sing. Whatever we are employed about, let us do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and in believing dependence on him. Those who do all in Christ's name will never want a matter of thanksgiving to God, even the Father. I love what he says there at the end. If you do everything in Christ's name, you'll never have to find something to be thankful for. Because you're doing it all in Christ's name. You're doing all with his aim, with the glory of God in sight. That means you'll be thankful for the thorns like Paul was. You'll be thankful for the persecutions. You'll be thankful for even the common sufferings that we have to endure because we're doing everything to the name of God. So brethren, today our prayer, our hope, our longing is that our hearts would long for the word of Christ to dwell in us and to dwell in us richly. That's our prayer. Let's pray.